from the High Center Studios of Messiah College, the Cloister by the Creek in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 42 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Drew, it is a crisp fall day here in Grantham. Abby LaBianca is here. She's behind the glass. I got you to my left, and we are ready to entertain and inform with some good American history. Drew, we are recording this in the middle of the semester, and I know you're not teaching this fall, but I know you're busy. How are you holding up with the new job here at Messiah? I mean, I have to say things are going quite well. It's been a learning experience. As I mentioned before, I'm the filling a new position, the project manager of the Digital Harrisburg Initiative. Frankly, I'm overseeing some students who know a lot more about both <laughs> the history and the technology that go into Digital Harrisburg. Being their boss is a little bit weird because yeah. they actually know what they're doing a lot better than I do. Um, but we're making progress and it does mean I get to spend a lot more time here on campus, which is always a delight. And you just got back from Mexico, correct? I did. I did. I was there on behalf of my other, my other hat, my, my graduate student hat. I was uh, presenting a paper at the annual meeting of the American Society for Ethnohistory. This year, the meeting was held in Oaxaca, Mexico. So yeah. uh, because of the exotic locale, we decided to go as a whole family. So the intern, Nilsa, That's right. she jumped on an airplane for the first time, her first time overseas. We got that kind of comical three-year-old passport. Uh, it, was also <laughs> the, it was actually also the first time that either uh, my wife or Nilsa got to see me speak in an academic capacity. Oh, so they, they came snuck, to the session. They snuck in on the session. All right, all right. Uh, I was very impressed by Nilsa's ability to sit in the back and listen as I read a paper on 18th century imperialism, race, and intimacy. Uh, and, and in fact, I mean, it was kind of cute. Uh, when I finished, m- my wife kept telling Nilsa, got to be quiet until daddy's done. You got to be yeah. quiet. And then, and then she goes, look, Nilsa, daddy's daddy finished. And she yelled out from the back row in her little three-year-old voice. Good job, daddy. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, awesome. and the whole place, you know, yeah. was, was through the roof. And then did she ask you a question about like, you know, racial theory as it she relates did. to she, ethno- she really yeah. stuck it to me. She was, <laughs> she was like, I, I'm not convinced by your historiographical intervention. It's <laughs> no. great. Actually, she, it was nice. I was the first one on my panel okay. to go. So they, I think they stuck out the back and right. went and sat by the pool. I miss um, Nilsa. I miss Nilsa here in the studio. We sure, haven't had Yeah. Her. We've Left been recording it. a little bit later in the yeah, evenings. This, yeah. uh, so it's a little bit harder. But I mean, she'll be around. She'll be around. Drew, we're going to be talking today actually about Catholicism in America. And of course, much of Catholicism, right, has Latin American and Central American roots, at least one branch of uh, Catholicism in America. Um, It's a Catholicism, I think, that's deeply influenced by indigenous culture as well. Now, so when you were in Mexico, you know, did you do any sightseeing at Catholic sites or any kind of observations of kind of indigenous Catholicism in Mexico? I mean, this is a this is an organization that primarily focuses on indigenous history. And so uh, they tend to have the meetings in, in indigenous places. So, yeah, yeah. you know, last year was in Winnipeg, which yeah. is uh, the most indigenous city in Canada. And, and is that right? at okay. least by, by some measurement, I'm, yeah. I'm not really sure how you, what the metrics for that kind of measurement are, but Oaxaca is likewise the most uh, indigenous city in Mexico. So it was a great place to observe the, um, the syncretism at the yeah. heart of Mexican Catholicism. In fact, a kind of fun story. We decided to go, uh, as a family one night uh, to the Santo Domingo de Guzman, uh, which is still an active church. Yeah. Uh, it had an old Dominican monastery attached. It was built in 1575, wow. uh, kind of, and it's, it's kind of this pinnacle of, of Baroque Catholic church design in the Spanish colonial period in, in Mexico. Uh, you know, when we showed up, unbeknownst to us, we were crashing a wedding, uh, oh, so, wow. which, of course, had this kind of public and private component. So we actually weren't allowed into the church where the wedding was happening, but there was already a giant celebration. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, much of what they were doing, the way they were doing their celebration, didn't seem very Catholic, right? It seemed yeah, very in, yeah. um, indigenous or at least uh, local. Sure, in, in, sure. in its characteristics. But of course, you know, it's combined with this celebration of the sacrament of, yeah, of holy yeah. matrimony. So yeah. it was really neat. They had these giant puppets that you wore on your shoulders and, okay. and Nilsa thought they were the best. And, yeah. you know, it was also surrounding the time of uh, the celebration of Dios de la Muerto, which is uh, Day of the Dead. Uh, so there's 
bits of that intermingled. So it was it was definitely a fascinating yeah. place to walk around. Yeah, great story too. Our guest today is actually going to take us to Catholicism in the Northeast in the early 19th century. Elizabeth Ann Seton was the first American-born Catholic saint. And uh, I actually live about a mile from a Catholic parish named after Seton. And I, I never really thought deeply about the parish's namesake until I read uh, today's guest's Catherine O'Donnell's new biography, Elizabeth Seton, American Saint. Uh, it is an incredibly well-written and insightful biography of Seton, places her story in the history of American Catholicism, the history of the early American Republic, um, and it also helped me understand the Catholic community of Emmitsburg, Maryland. If you ever have driven from Washington, D.C. to Gettysburg or Harrisburg, Pennsylvania on Route 15, you've passed Mount St. Mary's uh, College. Um, I gave a lecture there a few years ago, but you know now I want to go back and actually explore it uh, a bit more now that I know some of the history. We're kind of earning a reputation here at the podcast for doing uh, episodes on Catholic converts, female Catholic female converts. Female Catholic converts. That's right. I hadn't thought about this until I was writing the transcript for today's episode. Back in episode 11, we actually interviewed Colorado State uh, history professor Ann Little, who was the author, uh, is the author of The Many Captivities of Esther Wheelwright. Like Seton, Wheelwright was also a Protestant convert to Catholicism, although, of course, about a, more than a century earlier. So, yeah, this is not the first time that we've uh, we've uh, talked about a female Catholic convert in uh, American history. Uh, so we will talk about Elizabeth Ann Seton in a few minutes with Catherine O'Donnell. But first, Drew, tell us how our listeners can connect more fully with the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We're also sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. History is a critical but often overlooked part of nurturing and developing vital communities. Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beattie and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. Over his 20-year career in nonprofits in the public sector, Bob Beattie has honed proven strategies to engage communities deeply in the work of history organizations and museums. Contact Bob at lindhurstgroup.org. That's L-Y-N-D-H-U-R-S-T group.org to learn how the Lindhurst Group can help you help make your institution the asset your community wants and needs. Also, we need to welcome our newest Sterling sponsor, mm. Mark Durfee. Thanks so much for all that you are doing to keep this podcast moving forward. Mark, one of these days, I want to see a picture of you. I know you're listening with a Wave of Poop Leads Home podcast hat and a Wave of Poop Leads Home podcast t-shirt worn at the same time. You know what I'm talking about, and anyone who knows Mark knows what I'm talking about. So a little inside, inside joke there for our new supporter. So if you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. Yeah, but in all seriousness, thank you so much for all of you who are supporting us from the Lindhurst Group right on through. Uh, we couldn't do this podcast without you. We try to bring you as a as professional of a sound and as professional a product as possible. So again, we, we really appreciate your support. And the best way to spread the word, which of course, I mean, this is why we're doing the podcast, right? We want to get this into as many earbuds as possible. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to take it to social media, right? I mean, we're not here for the money. We're here to get our message out. So again, follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and Facebook and consider giving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. Listen to us, share us on Spotify. I mean, if you know anybody, if you know anybody, anybody. Anybody you might have the slightest inclination, even just maybe an inclination to listen to one episode, right? Maybe there's a very specific. If they listen episode. to one episode, Drew, they'll be hooked. Exactly. That's yeah. what I'm trying to say. <laughs> this happens. I see. I see the analytical data. You see, I I know how many downloads we're getting. Yeah. We always get more downloads every week. We get more listeners. But what happens? They go back and they listen to the old episodes, right? And then they find out why we need. The uh, professional audio engineers, That's because right. <laughs> back in the first season when I was doing all the audio engineering, it's a lot less listenable than it is now. Right, right. So 
Thank you again, and please tell all your friends. And now, John, before we get to Catherine O'Donnell, you have a few words for us about the history of Catholicism in America. As I read Catherine O'Donnell's biography of Elizabeth Seton, I was reminded once again of the anti-Catholicism deeply ingrained in the life of the early American Republic. In a religiously free society, Elizabeth Seton was free to pursue her religious pilgrimage in her own way, without government interference. But because the early United States was a largely Protestant country, converting to Catholicism meant that Seton needed to count the cost in terms of her social standing, her prospects for work, and her relationship with her extended family members. While American Catholicism certainly had its share of prominent citizens, the practice of Catholicism remained strange, superstitious, and even irrational in a Protestant nation. Seton was the wife of a prominent merchant from a prominent New York family. Her conversion to Catholicism was an embarrassment to many in that family. If Protestantism was about progress, individualism, and reason, Catholicism was backward, overly communal in a rights-oriented society, and too mystical and enchanted in a burgeoning modern world. This anti-Catholicism was part of the political and religious DNA of the American founding and the American founders. John Jay, for example, the author of the Federalist Papers, first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Secretary of State, and Governor of New York, did not believe that the adherents of non-Protestant religious groups, especially Roman Catholics, should be involved in the political process. Jay's strong dislike of Catholics was probably rooted in some combination of his Huguenot upbringing, his interpretation of the Bible, and his belief that Catholics, because of their allegiance to papal authority, would not make good Republican citizens. Like many Protestants of his day, Jay believed that the Pope was the, quote, great Antichrist mentioned in the scriptures, unquote. During the writing of the New York Constitution in 1777, he proposed an amendment forbidding Roman Catholics from owning land until they rejected the authority of, quote, Pope priest and foreign authority, unquote, and the, quote, dangerous and damnable doctrine that the Pope or any other earthly authority have power to absolve from men from sins or their obligation to the state of New York. The amendment was rejected, but it reveals Jay's fear that Catholics were incapable of giving their ultimate loyalty to the state. In the end, he was able to pass an amendment to the Constitution requiring immigrants to, quote, renounce all subjection to all and every foreign king, prince, potentate and state in all matters, ecclesiastical as well as civil, unquote. Similarly, John Adams understood Catholicism to be the ultimate form of superstition and irrational religion. Adams attended several Catholic masses during his lifetime and visited the sites of Catholic shrines and monasteries when traveling in Europe. He never described Catholic worship and practice in a positive light and often spewed the kind of anti-Catholic rhetoric that was quite common in British American life. In 1774, after visiting St. Mary's Catholic Church in Philadelphia, Adams wrote to his wife, Abigail. This afternoon's entertainment was to me most awful and affecting. The poor wretches fingering their beads, chanting Latin, not a word of which they understood. Their paternosters and Ave Marias, their holy water, they're crossing themselves perpetually. They're bowing to the name of Jesus wherever they hear it. They're bowing and kneelings and genuflections before the altar. The dress of the priest was rich with lace. His pulpit was velvet and gold. The altarpiece was very rich. Little images and crucifixes about wax candles lighted up. But how shall I describe the picture of our Savior in a frame of marble over the altar, at full length upon the cross, in the agonies, and the blood dripping and streaming from his wounds? Here is everything which can lay hold of the eye, ear, and imagination— Everything which can charm and bewitch the simple and ignorant. I wonder how Luther ever broke the spell. Adams believed that Catholics were being deceived by the teachings and rituals of their church. As a man deeply influenced by the Enlightenment, 
He could not tolerate any form of religion that seemed to contradict the dictates of reason. He had a particular contempt for those who spread the Catholic faith around the world, especially the Jesuits. When the Jesuit order was constituted by the Catholic Church in 1814, Adams was alarmed, writing to Thomas Jefferson, if ever any congregation of men could merit eternal perdition on earth and hell, it is the company of Loyola. He fully expected the Jesuits to come to America and influence political elections through the organization of Catholic voters. In the political realm, Adams believed that liberty and popery, as he called it, cannot live together. Catholicism was a tyrannical religious system that required its followers to pay ultimate homage to the Pope. The Roman Catholic Church was the antithesis of liberty. Catholicism's religious authority in the Western world, including what Adams called its, quote, incomprehensible power of creating out of bread and wine the flesh and blood of God himself, kept human nature chained fast for ages in cruel, shameful, and deplorable servitude to the Pope and his subordinate tyrants, unquote. Catholicism, of course, was the established religion of some of the most tyrannical political regimes in Europe, especially in France, England's most powerful military and economical rival. The anti-Catholicism of Jay and Adams was only the beginning. The fear of Catholics, whether it be the Irish immigration of the 1850s, the Italian immigrants at the turn of the 20th century, or the Protestant fears of a Catholic president in 1928 and 1960, would remain one of our country's long-lasting prejudices. In many ways, American freedom and liberty was built on opposition to the Church of Rome. Catherine O'Donnell is Associate Professor of History at Arizona State University, where she has taught since 2001. She is the author of Men of Letters in the Early Republic, published by the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture and the University of North Carolina Press in 2008. And she is currently working on a narrative history of Jesuits in the United States. Her scholarly articles have appeared in the William and Mary Quarterly, the Journal of the Early American Republic, Early American Literature, and the U.S. Catholic Historian. At Arizona State, she teaches undergraduate and graduate courses on early American history in the Atlantic world. O'Donnell's most recent book, Elizabeth Seton, American Saint, was published in 2018 by Cornell University Press's Three Hills imprint. We are very excited today to have Catherine O'Donnell on the program. She teaches history at Arizona State University, and she is the author of an excellent new biography of Elizabeth Seton called Elizabeth Seton, American Saint. Thanks for coming on the show, Catherine. We are really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Now, many of our listeners, I'm guessing, may not be familiar with Elizabeth Seton, you know, I know she is a, an important figure in Catholic history and American Catholic history. But uh, tell us just briefly, who who is she? Why does this person merit a, uh, a biographical study? Sure. I'll start at uh, kind of an end point, which is that in 1975, Elizabeth Seton uh, became the first native born American citizen to be made a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and uh, she also founded the Sisters of Charity in the United States, which exist to this day. So to get to that point, uh, she led a really dramatic and unexpected life. And just a few, uh, a few kind of guide points along the way. She's born in Manhattan just before the American Revolution. Her mother dies during the war and her father is brilliant and kind of distracted. And Elizabeth has a young and very awkward, somewhat cold stepmother. So she has an unsettled, anxious childhood. Um, she marries very happily a, a, a handsome transatlantic merchant named William Seton. And she uh, she lives very contentedly for several years. She eventually bears five children, 
Um, but her husband's health fails, his business fails. They go to Italy in a desperate attempt to save both of those things, the man and the business. Right. Um, they fail. Uh, he dies, and it's there that she first contemplates conversion to Catholicism. And then long story short, she comes back home to New York, this agonized period of reconsideration, does convert, and then eventually ends up in rural Maryland um, as Mother Seton directing a religious community. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about this. Um, we're up here in Messiah College in uh, Grantham, Pennsylvania, Mechanicsburg. We're about like an hour north of there. Any time, you know, if you're ever traveling from Harrisburg to Washington, D.C. or vice versa, you know, I've taken this dozens and dozens of times, that incredibly looking Catholic college and institution is, uh, is, is up there on the Mount, mm -hmm. right? They right. call it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of my friends growing up, I grew up here in central Pennsylvania, and a lot of my friends growing up, who were Catholic, eventually went to Mount St. Mary's. It was a popular yeah. destination from a, a number of students from my high school. Yeah, yeah. We, went Wonderful. on there because it's kind of the, one of the closer Catholic schools. Yeah, we'll, get, um, we'll come back to that here in a second. But, Drew, you had, a, you had a question. I mean, I guess I'm just curious about what led you to write a biography of Seton. Uh, how is your biography different from previous works? Yeah, so to start with the first, I owe it to a student, right? Like most right. good things. I mean, this is years ago. This is before I wrote my first book. I was teaching a class on um, the early republic, and I decided to teach it through biography, having students do biography. And I had a student say that she'd like to write about Mother Seton because she'd mm. grown up in a Mother Seton parish. And I thought, well, that's a fine idea. <laughs> I, I, I bet there's a lot of scholarly work on her. And there really wasn't, yeah. to my surprise. Um, I think that Seton's sainthood kind of uh, repelled uh, scholarly investigation somehow. It made her seem not also like a woman, which she was. And when I realized just the trove of documents that were available, yeah. I kind of made a note that I wonder if I can get an article out of that. Right, <laughs> and right. then, of course, as is the way of the world 10 years later, you know, one finishes one's book. Um, <laughs> and there is there is one good, uh, very good scholarly biography that we all owe a lot to, and that's Annabelle Melville's book from the 1950s. Okay. Um, and she laid a, a lot of groundwork. As I looked at it, I realized that there are realms that Melville didn't really explore um, some of the continuing importance of Protestantism, for example, to Seton, some of the depths of her struggles with family members, her struggles over conversion, her interest in Rousseau, yeah. um, and also things like the Catholic Church's use of enslaved labor. Right. These were all things that were really not part of Melville's rubric um, and could be part of mine. You and I kind of operate in the same kind of world because we're both trained early American historians, but we also have interest in American religion. And so much of American religion is like church history. And yeah. but you situate her in, you know, the War of 1812, the transatlantic trade in the <laughs> early republic. And it was just fascinating to see kind of your training as an early American historian and then a religious historian bringing those two worlds together. You don't often get that as much with these kinds of studies. Yes, thank you. And yeah, I kind of realized, my gosh, if there's if there's a national or international challenge in that period, Elizabeth Seton. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you got Italy, it. you got these two merchants yeah. in Italy, these brothers. And I mean, it's just a fascinating story. Tell us a little bit about Catherine the kind of religious life of Manhattan, you know, seeing is, is, is it fair to say she's kind of a woman of privilege, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, she, I wouldn't say she spends her whole life wealthy. She has her, her financial difficulties. Her husband does, but you also seem to want to place her in the kind of, I think it was John Butler who called the early 19th century kind of a spiritual hothouse, right? You know, the second great awakening and so forth. Um, Tell us about the religious milieu of Manhattan at this time, and then maybe tell us a little bit about her church affiliation and especially her relationship with this figure, John Henry Hobart. I wrote about Hobart, actually, in my book on the American Bible Society. He was an opponent of the American Bible Society. So that's where I first ran into this guy. But he seems to be everywhere in kind of New York religion in the early 19th century. And Seton has a rather intimate connection, maybe quote unquote intimate, right, with him. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, that whole religious world that she inhabits before she converts. 
Wonderful. Absolutely. Right. So so Manhattan, where she's growing up, where she spends her young womanhood, is this kind of mix of um, practical day-to-day tolerance and then sort of bursts of vitriol yeah. <laughs> right, and animosity. Um, but for the most part, the, the people around her will opt for uh, cooperation rather than orthodoxy of any kind. Right. Um, And so as she's growing up, she is within a kind of vaguely Anglican and then after the revolution, Episcopalian family. But her own father uh, did not attend services as a medical student of his wrote, he felt he had better things to do. And Seton herself had kind of more of an individual connection to religion. She, She read the Bible. She seems to have had this sort of longing for divinity, um, but not an institutional connection. But she's surrounded, you know, she's by people who do have other institutional connections. So she hears Methodist hymns um, being sung, and she loves those. She admires, as she says, the Quakers in their pretty hats. And she's she's kind of making fun of herself. But what she saw, I think, is people who were making a distinctive spiritual choice, right? These women were making a choice um, and it was reflected in their dress. She was fascinated by that. And her husband and her husband's family were very happy to trade with Catholic merchants, although she had no direct experience of Catholicism at that point. And it's as her life becomes um, more difficult because of her husband's health and business issues that she moves from cheerfully reading sermons and and writing, if this makes people good, great. But right. if, you know, going to balls and, and being friendly makes people good, that's also fine, right? Yeah, yeah. She moves from that to this fascination with Episcopalianism as presented in a specific way by John Henry yeah, Hobart, yeah. exactly as you say. And he's very young when she meets him. She's in her mid-20s. He's a couple years younger, basically. Oh, he's younger. Wow. He's I, I guess I didn't pick years. that up. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah, just, yeah. just very similar. And he has, he seems to have a similar kind of um, melancholic temperament, mm-hmm. a love for a finely turned phrase. Yeah. So there's an exquisite nature to um, to Hobart's writing and sermonizing, but it's also impassioned. He doesn't yeah. read, he just emotes. And as yeah. you know, yeah. this is controversial. You have to have a taste for Hobart, right? Yeah. And a lot yeah. of people did not. She did. She loves also the liturgical nature of of his offering. Um, She loved the tradition of it. Um, So she begins to attend his services as often as possible. She wishes she could go to communion more. Um, And there she really leaves her husband behind. He and most of the people that she know remain kind of polite, genteel, Mm -hmm. cosmopolitan New Yorkers. She is passionately drawn to this Episcopalianism, although she's still, I should say, she's still reading Rousseau at this point. She still even refers to dear Jean-Jacques, right? Right, So so she hasn't yet chosen uh, uh, an exclusive path. Yeah. And Hobart, right, is the rector at Trinity Church, right? So it's time, Drew, for our obligatory Alexander Hamilton reference, right? He's buried (laughs) in that graveyard. Um, What's what's the movie with, uh, you know, some of our listeners might appreciate this. What's the movie with Trinity Church uh, with the crypt underneath, uh, you know, and Nicolas Cage? Uh, oh, of course. Uh, I, uh, my- na- American Treasure? National, National Treasure. Treasure. National Abigail's Treasure. Abigail's yelling National Treasure. I'm about this to this day. Yes. I'm just trying, forgive me for, for the pop culture references. I'm just trying to connect with our audience, right? They might. Hey, so, I threw Hamilton in there too. I'm like, I noticed that. The- <laughs> I, I was going to ask you about that. I noticed you got Hamilton in there a little bit at the, in the in the early stages. Good. I, I don't think any historian right now who can put Hamilton in into anything should avoid putting Hamilton <laughs> right. into anything. If you can do it, you we should do, do it. do not suffer from the sin of pride. Right. In he goes. <laughs> so you have, you have Hobart and then you, there's this almost like, I don't know if this is fair or not, Catherine, but there's, there's this kind of war for her soul between these two uh, men. You have Hobart Absolutely. and then you have, tell us who Antonio, the Felici, is that right? Felici, Felici. 
Um, I think Felici is preferred. Okay. So you have the Felici brothers in Italy and especially Antonio, but uh, Philip as well, Filippo, Filippo. They are these Catholic merchants. And there's this war for for Elizabeth's soul between the Episcopalian Hobart and then these Italian brothers. Um, First of all, how how do these Italian brothers even get into the mix, the story? And then who wins in that battle for her soul? Yeah, great. And, and I should say that is precisely how I imagine it. Okay, it's this okay. transatlantic battle yeah. for the soul of Elizabeth. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the Feliki are merchants who had hosted William, Elizabeth's husband, when he was a young man. They had done business with William's father as well um, and sort of taught him the ways of uh, being a merchant in Italy uh, so that he could right. he could be more successful in New York. Um, they lose huge sums uh, as William's business goes under. They quite kindly uh, agree that uh, they will again host William and now also Elizabeth and their oldest daughter at, in a desperate hope that maybe the climate of Italy will be better for his tuberculosis right. or consumption. And he also has the idea he can save his business while they're there. He dies very quickly. But the Felici have also, especially Filippo, have also always been interested in planting the church right. um, in the United States, which they see as maybe less problematic <laughs> than yeah, yeah. a Europe that has had the French Revolution, that has Napoleon. Um, they don't actually see the United States as necessarily hostile territory. So when Elizabeth, this very recent widow, she's lost her been days before, arrives with her daughter, they see an act of providence. Um, Here is a pious, uh, socially prominent woman who can, and they're sincere about this, be taught the true path to God. And also because they're merchants is the best marketing opportunity kind of of faith ever had because they imagine her returning to the United States and then presenting Catholicism as a respectable and wonderful option. So Filippo is kind of the the teacher of doctrine right. and the stern one. Antonio, who 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 is married, they're both married, right. but Antonio is only a few years younger than Filippo, but is clearly this charming, glamorous, mm-hmm. uh, more care for younger brother. Yeah. Um, and uh, Elizabeth Seton is profoundly drawn to to Catholicism, to the way kind of, in her view, it allows heaven to come closer to earth through saints, through gestures, through material culture. She she feels it as a more pervasive and immediate religion than the Protestantism she'd known. She also loves Antonio. And uh, you have read the letters that I, you know, I include in the book. So this is not over-interpretation, right? I mean, she is... She begins to love Antonia in a way that worries her, shocks her, because she deeply loved her husband and she's just been widowed. But I I think it's fair to say a couple of things. She she has throughout her life, including with her father and with Hobart, now with Antonio, had an emotional charge to her intellectual relationships. Mm -hmm. And this is a spiritual relationship, but it absolutely carries this emotional charge. It did with Hobart. It does with with Antonio. And I think... Uh, she almost can't bear to think about her husband uh, because as she, as she becomes more convinced that Catholicism is the true church, she worries for her soul, yeah. his soul rather. And Antonio becomes this vision of certainty and acceptance. And she just can't think about anything but Antonio and God. And she yeah. really kind of puts it that way. Yeah. So Hobart, as she arrives back in New York and the Feliki have seen fit to send Antonio back with her to kind of safeguard her yeah. her potential conversion, uh, Hobart sees sees Antonio's presence as proof that Elizabeth has been misused, that they've taken advantage of her as a widow. And he doesn't want her to lose her faith. He doesn't want to lose. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Also. No, yeah. Um, And the kind of final wrinkle to that is 
his uh, Episcopalianism is liturgically rich enough and connected to the history of the church enough so that people accuse him of being a crypto Catholic. Right, right. So now to have his one of his prized parishioners actually become a Catholic is too much yeah, to bear. Yeah. And they write these warring uh, tracks to try to to win her over. But as to who wins, she wins, right? Yeah, and yeah. she she is moved by both of them. She right. loves both of them in different ways. She listens. But it is clear throughout that she is going to make this decision right. Right. when and how she sees fit. And that's what she finally does. Yeah. And you tell that story so well because there's always these and even throughout the whole book. Right. There's always these kind of strong spiritual directors. Right. Mm-hmm. In her life. But it's always Elizabeth. Right. Who is yes. who is the one who's going to make the final call. And, you know, the gender, the, the way you play with the gender in a way and still tell the story, not get caught up in the theory and all this. But, you know, it's, it's so clear that this is the story of a strong, uh, a strong woman who Great. is taking responsibility for her own spiritual life, despite the fact that her world is surrounded by these these male religious figures. So I love the way you you tell it that way. Drew, you wanted to jump in. I should point out, I did wear my Episcopal shield lapel pin on my jacket today, so we can nice. say yeah. which... I, I'm Team Hobart, unfortunately. Team Hobart. <laughs> unfortunately, we didn't win this one. Yeah. In the, yeah. In all seriousness, she's actually honored in the Episcopalian calendar of saints as well. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, it's true. Now, so Elizabeth converts. She converts to Catholicism. I was telling you before we got on the the air or the recording here that that, I think that part's worth the price of the book. You know, the way you sort of tell her story and the anticipation. You know, I was kind of sitting in my recliner reading it the other night saying like, when's she going to make the decision? When she, you know, she, you know, when does she convert, you know? Um, but then, so her husband has died. She's kind of living alone. Well, not alone, but she's with her five children in New York. She's looking for work and, and, and then just jumping ahead for the sake of time. She ends up in Baltimore. Uh, mm-hmm. and then eventually in this tiny little Western Maryland backwoods frontier town of Emmitsburg, um, mm-hmm. real quickly, tell us, you know, in a nutshell, like how that, transition takes place because it's really in some ways too it's really not what Catherine her ideal situation she wanted to end up in Montreal right Um, and so yeah tell us about that yeah yeah she 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 wanted she wanted Italy again right or her version of Italy which of course wasn't even really Italy right her traveler's view of a of a holy catholic and beautiful world um and the clergy that she begins to collaborate with kind of make clear that that is logistically difficult and they also make clear um that they too kind of like Hobart like Feliki before them see uh, Elizabeth Seton as valuable and they see her as a valuable face for the suspect kind of Catholic church in the United States, and they don't want to lose her to Canada. So uh, in a nutshell, Seton kind of makes it impossible for her to stay in New York. She is too assertive about her faith, about sharing her faith. She does ask for this assistance. Um, She's offered a place teaching in Baltimore connected to St. Mary's there, not Mount St. Mary's, but Baltimore St. Mary's. Um, And she's, she's, thrilled by that, but very quickly not satisfied because she is still a school teacher. Right, her, right. She is, it's not a sufficiently devotional life to her. And there are clergy who feel that she is suited to creating a kind of apostolic community, obviously not a cloistered community. Right. She has five young children, but perhaps an apostolic community like the Ursulines, like right. the French Daughters of Charity. Right. And Mount St. Mary's is just beginning outside of Emmitsburg, and land is also owned in the valley. So it's actually St. Joseph's Valley is the brother to Mount St. Mary's. Mm-hmm. They're that close to each other. And so the idea is that she will found an American sisterhood. It doesn't yet have a rule or any kind yeah. of formal legitimacy and a school that will take in borders, but also serve local students. And there's also a vague sense um, that the sisterhood will serve the poor, but exactly how that will happen is not really clear. And in fact, that part of the Vincentian sort of charisma doesn't 
doesn't yeah. really come into play until much later in Seton's life and after Seton's life. But yeah. so there she is on a drafty right, like right. log cabin. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, so when does the sort of Sisters of Charity, when yeah. does that title kick in or when does that happen? When do they become the Sisters of Charity? They borrow this somewhat from the French, but they want to make yeah. it an American system. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So uh, so they consider themselves from kind of the point of their arrival, 1808, 1809, a sisterhood, and they live by an informal rule. They have director who's a Sulpician, but it's another several years down the road. And after, because this is Elizabeth Eden, a lot of struggle and questioning, um, where she even wonders whether she should continue with this, whether she is suited. She's had so many difficulties with, with clergy and with her own nature. But eventually, a rule is transported from France, which is basically the Daughters of Charity rule. It's adapted by clergy. Um, She is written into it in a way that makes it possible for her to be a literal mother, a biological mother, as well as a figurative mother. And the order then begins to uh, take in novices and to have a, a formal existence. Right. They they still, um, they're not nuns in a technical sense. Everyone called them nuns. Right. I think there's one time where I use that word sort of tongue in cheek as well. Yeah. But they take annual vows, not perpetual vows. Right. And they're they're clearly not, not cloistered. But yeah. from that beginning, um, they're springs that both sisters and daughters of charity in the United States because sure. there are there are variations of the community who who still exist. Right, right. So Elizabeth is in Emmitsburg and she's kind of a mother, right, in two ways, right? She's yeah. she's a sort of capital M mother of yeah. this of this community. But then she's the biological mother to five children. And here, here you have these priests again, right? You know, can yeah. she balance, you know, I think it's even, even Archbishop Carroll, right? In Baltimore, can right. she balance, can she balance these two responsibilities to be a, a spiritual mother to this community, but also, you know, five children. And then she's also kind of surrounded as a mother. And you tell this, the story so well of her children surrounded as well by death too, in her community, as she watches some of her both her her community members that she's the mother to, but also her biological children pass away. So so how does she navigate that whole thing? It is re- remarkably yeah. difficult. Um, and even just setting at the kind of most shallow level, she is balancing motherhood in a career. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Where is the time in the day? Where is the space in the heart and the mind? I mean, the, these are the questions that she is constantly dealing with. And then beyond that, her responsibility to the other women, to the other sisters, is not simply professional, right? right. They do turn to her for advice, for sustenance, for solace. Um, and she is constantly aware, especially in the earlier years, that she is making this up as she goes along, that she is as a mother before she'd ever been a sister. (laughs) Um, And she manages, it's clear from the writings of people around her, she manages to um, convey a kind of serenity and assurance that went far beyond what she actually felt. With the deaths around her, it just intensified what was already a struggle. And in fact, if people do visit the shrine, uh, which is the valley right below Mount St. Mary's, there's a cemetery and you see just this cluster of little white gravestones with dates very close to each other um, because the the deaths came so quickly in those early years. And she is somehow able to convey to others a constant sense of attention and compassion, even as it's clear from the documents, she's spending huge amounts of time nursing her dying daughters and and also dying sisters-in-law. So it's kind of a testament to her force of will and also the sustenance her faith provided her. It's also a testament to the people around her that the other women, agreed to this, right? They they understood that much of her time was given to her own children. And these deathbeds, in fact, would become temporarily 
a sort of heart of the community and the other women would also gather around. And rather than yeah. seeing it as as separating Elizabeth Seaton from her duties, the other women sort of turned it into an example of their yeah. duty to accept God's will, yeah. treat people with kindness under the harshest of conditions. So it's quite moving. Well, these, these deathbed scenes, especially when Anna Maria oh. dies, the oldest daughter, there's such windows into sort of like female Catholic piety. And the way you tell it is just, I, I love the way you spent time to sort of unpack every detail of this, of these accounts, or at least as best you can, you can uncover them yeah. because it, it, you know, it kind of not in a spiritual sense, but it, I just got done teaching um, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's midwife's tale. Mm -hmm. And you know, that, that female network. Now these are Protestants. They're not, you know, it's very different. There's no, there's no crucifixes around and stuff, but the, the scenes at the deathbeds and the midwife and, you know, these, these networks of female, you know, the communities that they form is just fascinating. I'm glad to hear that. I think all early Americanists have read uh, that book of yeah, 20 yeah, times and yeah. happily each time. So, yeah. No, yeah. So I want to ask you a question about the kind of spiritual journey that Elizabeth takes. You know, we talked a little bit about her conversion to Catholicism, but I hope I'm getting this right. I hope I'm reading you right here. You, at, see, at some point... She learns how to bring together a contemplative spirituality, right? A almost, you know, maybe monastic's not the right word, a cloistered kind of individual contemplative spirituality, a mysticism, um, which she you see very early in her conversion. And then and then she sort of turns out, I think you argue, towards also an activism. Like how does she bring those two worlds together? The the contemplative life, but also the activism that is going to uh, shape her work in the Sisters of Charity? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And one of the things I was most struck by learning about her was the extent to which she was by nature more of a mystic, yeah. I think. And in popular culture, popular Catholic culture, she naturally an active woman. And even in sort of secular history, she's kind of a match to the Protestant benevolent women. Right. And she does enter that world through the Sisters of Charity. But her own inclination is to pray, is to um, remind herself that the things of this earth pass away, right? right Rather right. than to fix up the things of this yeah, earth. Yeah. Um, so that is not an option. The the form of, of Catholic female spirituality that is available to her as a widow with five children is the apostolic model, which is an active model. Um, and she she does merge them. I, I think that she meditates kind of on Christ's suffering. Yeah on the brokenness of human nature, on the immense gap between the divine and the human. Yeah, yeah. And that enables her then to feel an immense compassion for people right. that moves her past her own capacity for sharp judgments yeah. and that instills her with a desire to help and also to be extraordinarily attentive and tender with people. Yeah, yeah. And this really is kind of an innovation on her part because there is a monastic tradition in which particular attachments draw one away from God. Right, right. Um, and so are to be set aside. And she um, rejects that uh, yeah. quite explicitly um, and argues that it, it it is through loving God that one can stand humans. Right, <laughs> right? right. So, yeah, yeah. But it's also that in specific loving attentiveness to others, that one best worships God. So so they do come together. And and the other thing that she has um, is is a sense of humor, a, a sense of the uh -huh. absurd. Yeah. And this, this to me really is part of her spirituality and, and part of kind of this bridge. It's, it's when she kind of fully accepts that everyone is, is absurdly sinful and a, just right. comical, right? right in right. their, in their yeah. imperfections that, that she really 
loses all temptation to to judge others right. and and achieves this serenity. It's a serenity through prayer, but also through a humorous sense of the absurd right, um, right. that that she develops uh, by the you know the last five years of her life. Right, right. Well, our time's just about up, but I would be remiss if I did not bring up the sainthood issue. Right? Let's talk a little bit about that quickly. I learned something. I always assumed Elizabeth was the first American Catholic saint, but Mother Cabrini, right, is actually, but she wasn't born in America. Did I get that right? Yes, this is why Satan has to have this very complicated and technical tagline. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So she's the first American-born Catholic saint. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell us just a little bit about that process of her canonization and, you know, how she became Mother Seton, right? I'm a mile, I live a mile away from one of her parishes. <laughs> I was telling Drew uh, before, I, you know, I've been to Mount St. Mary's once. I gave a lecture there, the college, but now I want to check out the Seton sites too. But tell us a little bit about that process and how she becomes a uh, so-called American saint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, She was revered in ways that, again, struck her as somewhat comical, Um, even during her lifetime. People were collecting her papers. She wanted to burn them and decided not to uh, because she knew she might be important. So there was this uh, body of documents and her her spiritual daughters, as they understand themselves, the sisters and daughters of charity, preserved her memory, knew that she wasn't uh, a saint, but imagined that that might be possible. Right. And it's in the early 20th century, as there are movements, and uh, Kathleen Spurs Cummings writes about this, right. to create uh, useful American saints, right? To build yeah. the church and build devotion by creating American saints. Seton is one of the names uh, put forward, and eventually a mother, Seton Guild forms, uh, the Sisters and Daughters of Charity. Uh, had collected something like 13 volumes of Mm -hmm. documents Mm -hmm. and testimonies that were eventually sent to Rome. And once again, particularly by the 30s and 40s into the 50s, once again, uh, Elizabeth Seton has become a useful figure, right? Yeah, Just as yeah. she'd been to Hobart, as right, she'd been to right. the Fleeky, as she'd been to the clergy. Yeah. And now, as the percentage of immigrants in the American church was dropping, she was... Uh, a face that might seem more familiar to some American Catholics, inoffensive to American Protestants. And that kind of spurred the conviction of some that she was a good choice. Now, the sisters and daughters were not thinking in that sort of cold strategic way, uh, but, but, there is a strategy, right? And yeah, and who yeah. becomes a saint and why? So on it goes. It took forever, as 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 these things tend to do. Uh, women signed petitions. There are these wonderful. Um, uh, petition forms that look kind of like political petitions, but they're petitioning Rome that Uh she please be made a saint. Um, And uh, two miracles are brought forth. Uh, So she's beatified. Um, The the cause files contain this wonderful mix of reason and faith that I think Mm -hmm. Seton would have appreciated with at least one physician saying, you know, it's improbable, but not miraculous. (laughs) So out it goes, doesn't count. (laughs) And uh, after she's beatified, technically two more miracles were required, but um, the Pope uh, says, we'll take one. And there there you have it. So that was uh, 1974. And in 1975, she's canonized. um, And it's the I believe it's the first time a woman performs a reading at one of these ceremonies uh, in Rome sisters and daughters attended. And people kind of pointed out that it it happened to also be the International Year of Women. Is that right? Okay. It's so interesting. Um, We have been talking with Catherine O'Donnell. She is the author of a fabulous new biography, uh, Elizabeth Seton, American Saint, published in 2018 by Cornell University Press. Catherine, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for writing this book. And thanks also for all of your support of what we're doing here at uh, The Way of Improvement Leads Home. We love your retweets and we love all the support that you're giving us. So uh, thanks for coming on. It has been such a thrill. I truly am a fan. So thank you so much for having me. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Drew, I absolutely love this biography. It is so riveting. You put it alongside Ann Little's book on Esther Wheelwright. 
read these two together. They're just phenomenal. There's so much good work being done right now on American women's religious history. And O'Donnell's book is just so well written and it's so, so captivating as she tells the story of this, this figure that probably is well known in Catholicism, but she's not very well known outside of the Catholic Church. I just have to put in a plug for this type of biography. We often talk, and you know, and in fact, during the interview, we were even joking about sli- slipping in uh, Alexander Hamilton. But so many of these kind of early American founders, you know, we talk about founders chic. Right. These biographies get written and rewritten and rewritten. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you know, I know this is something that Anne Little talks about a lot. Why do we have to keep writing the same biographies? So we said it about the the many captivities of Esther Wheelwright. We'll say it about Elizabeth Seton, American Saint. This is the book to get for Christmas. Put it in a stocking. Yeah. You know, go out and, and read about someone different. Don't just keep yeah. rereading these same biographies over and over again. I also think if you're Catholic or even a, even a religious Christian person of any sort, this might be a little unusual to say, but like reading about Anne Seton was kind of inspirational to my own personal faith. I mean, she's just an amazing woman and the piety. And so if you're Catholic, especially, or you're Christian, this book is very, very nourishing in some ways of, for the soul. And if you're not a Catholic, but you're interested in the early Republic and a really fascinating tale about early America from the perspective of women's history, it's a page turner. It really is. There were parts of it I couldn't stop reading. I couldn't put them down. Yeah, I mean, we were joking during the interview as well about me being Team Hobart, right? And, and yeah. I, I have to echo that. Is I mean, so much of this story about Elizabeth Seton being from an established religious family, but still yearning for a kind of new piety, a new spirituality. Yeah. I mean, that, that really is, is much of my story. You know, yeah. I, yeah. I became fascinated even in the church of my upbringing in new ways because yeah. I, yeah. I, growing up, hungered for something. I found it in liturgy. And so we're playing up some of the really good work being done on female piety, but even just piety in general, I think it's a very fascinating thing. You know, I don't know what Catherine, if she's listening to this, I don't know what Catherine's going to think about what I'm about to say, but it would not be out of the realm of possibility that someone could read this book who's on like some type of a spiritual sojourn and read the story of C and, and convert to Catholicism. It's it's that, you know, the depth of the sort of spiritual nature right. of, but yet also rooted, as we talked about in the interview, in the social, cultural, economic climate of Manhattan and the War of 1812 and the transatlantic world. It's just a brilliant piece of work. I yeah. hope it wins all kinds of awards. Yeah, so much of what we read about this, the, you, you mentioned the spiritual hothouse, yeah. or, you know, or the burned over district of upstate New York. Think about New York in this kind of second great awakening Protestant terms. And I, I think this is also a great piece of research into how Catholicism was part of that conversation right. as well. And, and you say this in your commentary that so many people are trying to talk about the incompatibility of Protestantism and yeah. ca- Catholicism, but much of this spiritual biography of Seton demonstrates yeah. how yeah. those lines aren't nearly as stark as, yeah. as many of her contemporaries would have wanted them to seem. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, I think that's a wrap, Drew. Thanks so much for joining us here for episode 42. If these kinds of questions about American religious history and biography and American history generally and the early America and, you know, if the, these are kind of questions that inspire you or trigger your intellectual capacities. Go listen to some back episodes and then even join us for for even extended conversation at the blog, The Way of Improvement Leads Home. We're doing this every day, right? This podcast is in many ways an extension of the blog and the entire project that we have here that we've called The Way of Improvement Leads Home. I should also add, if you have someone in the history of your community that you want to celebrate and research more deeply, it's a great opportunity to contact the Lindhurst Group, our sponsor, lindhurstgroup.org. Bob Beatty wants to make these kinds of connections with communities to help do this research well. And you talked a lot about going to, to Mount St. Mary's, going to Emmitsburg, and, and seeing yeah, a place yeah. that honors the history of, of this woman. There are lots of people who are like that in all of our communities. And so that's that's a great research for you as well, if that's a connection that you want to make. Yeah, connect with Bob. He's a great guy. He's got a lot of enthusiasm, um, loves what he does, very passionate. So yeah, check out the Lindhurst Group. And in the meantime, have a great day and may your way of improvement always lead home. 
This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast is brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardian, Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsors, Jennings College Consulting, Discovering the Right College Fit for Your Future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Many thanks to Ed Ark for all of his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Catherine O'Donnell. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermling, and your host, as always, is John Fia. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.